Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Karen Greenberg, has spent the last 15 years studying the intersection of national security, terrorism, and civil liberties. She's currently the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, and she's authored several books on the subject, including, most recently, Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And in 2009, she authored the critically acclaimed Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and we kick off discussing why it was that President Obama, having come to office eight years ago promising to shut down Guantanamo, failed to do so. Karen is someone who has been on my radar since the early Bush years and the debate over the Patriot Act, but I was fascinated and interested to learn how her career in foreign policy and national security was really launched while working with dissidents from Eastern Europe during the Soviet era. It's a great conversation, animated for sure, and I think you'll like it. Uh, one quick announcement before we start. If you are listening to this contemporaneously and are in Chicagoland, come to a live recording of the podcast with a special guest, former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Zalmay Khalilzad. Send me an email via the contact page on globaldispatchespodcast.com and I can get you a complimentary ticket. The event is this Thursday, January 19th at 7 p.m. See you there. And now here is Karen Greenberg. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We should be having this conversation tomorrow because tomorrow is the 15-year anniversary of the opening of Guantanamo. And so, isn't that interesting? It so is. Imagine, I did not realize that. Yeah, and and um, imagine that, right? So it's been 15 years and all it's been is one um, problem, and I mean deep problem after another, and it's still open. Why, you know, Obama said he was going to, famously said he was going to close it in a year. Why didn't he? Um, there are several answers to that. The first one is that for reasons that I don't quite understand, when the Obama administration came into office and, and very responsibly um, you know, appointed task forces to look at detention policy and at each one of the detainees that was held at Guantanamo, they didn't quite realize what they were up against um, with enough um, I don't want to say paranoia, but with enough uh, intensity to uh, to know that what they needed to do was to end it very quickly. And because they didn't do that, we still have not closed Guantanamo. And what the Obama administration would say was, oh, it was the politics. 
But if they had closed it and then said they were, you know, if they had moved everybody to the United States as a first step, um, it might have speeded up the process. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that happened. It's almost, I should say, almost like a microcosm of the entire Obama presidency, which is, you know, you're not realizing the extent to which intransigence on Capitol Hill would obstruct a major policy proposal. That's exactly right. And. The things that that um, some of us value um, the most, which have to do with thoughtfulness and thinking through things, was the approach that the Obama administration came in with. And it turned out that the more they thought about it, the more they delayed things that really had to be done, thereby allowing the political process to get ahead of them. And so, you know, there's some balance that needs to be between how long and intently you think about something and how quick to action you are. Both of them, you know, there needs to be some middle ground, right? And um, the Obama administration really did not move quickly enough. Um, I'm sure they have a million good reasons for this, but bottom line, that's one of the things that happened. And and what sort Um, of obstacles did Congress put before them? Well, the biggest obstacle that Congress put before them was in the National Defense Authorization Act for 2011, which was the first such act, it's been repeated since, which said you can no longer bring anybody from Guantanamo for any purpose um, here um, for, you know, for trial, for detention. Nobody from Guantanamo is coming to the United States. And once that happened, what were the options? What were the options that were left? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I would presumably what what they were doing, which is just try to transfer them to some third country for um, you know for for further jailing or for some rehabilitation program, which seems to be the process that they undertook, however slowly. Or just to let them out, they go back to these countries. They're not necessarily going to be tried, or they're they're we decide to release them, and they're and then we put them in a country where they are they are you know released. It's not it's not that they go to another prison system. But the the politics of that seem though to be kind of you know difficult, right? Like if you're releasing people from Guantanamo, what if they come back and, and strike again, sort of thing, which seems to be the big hesitancy on the Obama administration's part, right? Well, that's the discussion they find themselves in, whereas, you know, one side says, like if you let these people out, they could do bad things to us, and the other side says, um, you know, we don't have enough evidence to try them. Um, we're going to be at war forever. So there's no, we don't have an end date in which we can end this detention. Um, and, you know, there's going to be peace with terrorist groups. Um, so we need to keep them locked up. And the problem with that is that it violates some of the fundamental basics of American law and democracy and, and, and not just something from some kind of textbook, but something that actually matters. Can you be detained by a country without uh, trial? Um, and that is, that's a, a huge line to cross. And, um, and this is the situation we have. Granted, it's for uh, non-Americans, but um, having it there um, is uh, a potential vulnerability for um, for other uh, uh, administrations to abuse. So, with the um, 
option of trying these people in U.S. courts cut off um, way back in, in 2011. Uh, what's been sort of the, the de facto then, then policy up to this, up to like the last day in office for the Obama administration? So the de facto policy is to find um, places for as many individuals who are held at Guantanamo Bay as is possible. And starting late in 2015, I mean, and all along, they've been looking for third countries or the original country to return people that uh, um, a periodic review board decided were no longer dangerous um, to return them or give them to a third country. Um, And Late in 2015, they decided to speed up this this process quite dramatically. And since then, we've seen a series of releases. Um, And so Guantanamo now has a number of individuals who have been cleared for release who are about to be, who hopefully will be released even before the end of this presidency, believe it or not. Um, Although we don't know the details of that yet. And then there are 26 individuals who have been um, declared uh, too dangerous to release, but not enough evidence to try. And this is what we call forever detainees or indefinite detainees. And um, I mean, I can't imagine what their fate will be under the new administration, but that's where we stand. So and then you have the 10 individuals who are being tried before military commissions. Um, and, and so at its height, what was the population of the prison? I think it was 774, just under 800 was the most they had there. Um, And then under George Bush, over 500 were um, uh, released, which tells you something about who was and wasn't there in those early years. And then and um, and when Obama took it over, there were just under 300. And he has, you know, over time um, gotten it down to where now we have 55 individuals there, um, 29 of whom have been cleared for release. And so we'll see. Um, what do you, do you have any expectations or any, any, uh, like inclinations about what might happen to those, you know, prisoners that remain under the Trump administration? You know, my concern is more for, um, and I'll come back to that, but I think one of the, the real concern is for what will happen to Guantanamo, um, as an institution, will Guantanamo be for lack of a better term, open for business. Nobody's gone to Guantanamo since 2008. And actually then it was a a minor um, addition. I mean, it wasn't like there was a a policy of adding people with any kind of frequency as in the early years. And so you've had basically eight years, um, coming on nine years, where there haven't been anybody added to Guantanamo Bay. Now there's a possibility, and it's been mentioned by several of the nominees and by um, President-elect Trump himself, that Guantanamo could be open for new detentions. That That is the price of not having closed Guantanamo for whatever reasons. Um, and so that's where we stand. And and what has the Obama administration done instead of um, you know detaining people at at Guantanamo? Generally, they've they've captured uh, uh, suspected terrorists when they can and brought them to trial in in court here in the U.S. Right? Well, actually, there's been a, a very few who have been um, captured abroad and brought to the United States. There have been several who were. Uh, individuals um, associated with al-Qaeda who had been on the radar of American intelligence and law enforcement for quite a while. And I think these are more legacy cases Mm -hmm. that are old al-Qaeda cases. In terms of 
finding people abroad. There have been several, but but not with the kind of frequency mm -hmm. that there was um, in, in the earlier days before the Obama administration. And so what we've seen are very few cases where uh, alleged terrorists are apprehended abroad and, and brought to this country, although there have been um, a few. Um, what more likely what you see is individuals who are detained, if there are any, are given to the host country to, to either try or release or detain or, um, or individuals who the United States thinks are enemies at high levels um, are targeted by the uh, weaponized drone program and killed. Yeah, that's the other option, right? Yeah, that's the option, apparently. Um, so I'd, I'd love to, to switch gears and learn more about you. You have been on my radar since the, you know, I, I think since since basically the Patriot Act era. Uh, I've been <laughs> I've been looking to you for for sanity and, and, and guidance, and I'm glad to be able to to speak with you now. Um, so where are you from? I'm from New London, Connecticut. Ah, um, actually, that's quite far from. I grew up near Danbury, though so New London oh, and Danbury are not too well. Not around the corner, but... Um, well, here's the difference. Yes. Here's why I'm me and you're not. Okay. Because New, New London is basically a defense uh, yeah. security city. Sikorsky, right? Is... Yeah, well, that's more towards Hartford, but yeah. we had... Uh, the submarine base. Oh, the Groton, which, right. The Groton right, submarine We had the Groton base, submarine yeah. base. We had General Motors. We had um, the United States Coast Guard Academy. We had a number of... Um, uh, um, defense industry or security related um, uh, enterprises and all of which I knew as a child in part because my grandfather was mayor when I was a child and so I would get taken to for example um, Coast Guard ceremonies or more importantly I think for how I ended up to uh, christenings of um, or whatever you call it, launchings of, um, of nuclear submarines ah, okay. and so from you know, from when I was very young, I was very aware of the fact that there was such a thing as a nuclear standoff and that, you know, Russia was on the other side of that standoff. And I'm very attuned to, I guess, security issues in a way I didn't quite appreciate at the time. Did did your parents work in, in the field? No. 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 No, I just sort of, no, I just tagged along. So uh, as you're growing up in, in New London, I mean, how did you... Um... How did you sort of pursue those the ideas like intellectually? Like, did you, um, were there any books, any, any individuals that, that were particularly influential to you? You know, I don't think I thought about security when I was a kid. I'll tell you what I did think about, though. I did think about people who were being treated unjustly. And I don't know why, what it was about New London, did they treat people unjustly or what? But it was for some reason an issue for me. Um, from a very early age. And, and there were, you know, a number of instances where I just thought people were um, um, being um, um, mistreated either by the schools because of their race or the neighborhood they grow up in, um, or um, because I had friends who were accused of cheating and deprived of things by the school, whatever it was, I was for some reason attuned to those issues. But didn't, I'm sure I didn't even know the word civil liberties or when I was a kid. It wasn't on my radar. But, um, and no, I was just a regular kid. I was just reading regular books. What did we all read at the time? I don't know. But, you know, the way it did play out was that when I went to college, um, 
I made sure that I, I learned a lot of languages and it was very important to me to learn Russian. And and one of the reasons was, yeah, it was great. I was going to read Russian literature in Russian, but it wasn't just that. I, I, I wanted to know the language of the people that I'd been brought up to think were on the other side of that nuclear uh, divide. And I was pretty serious about it, which is, which is interesting because I ended up working in Russia for a few years. What, so, where did you go to school? I went to Cornell. Uh, and so you just, you, at that point in Cornell, you decided to study Russian. Yeah. And we had this immersion program where the professors were Russian speakers who didn't really speak English. So uh, that's one way to learn a language. Let me tell you, <laughs> it was great. And so did they send you to, to Russia? Cause there were like cultural exchanges at the time. So they did didn't. No, I wish they had. No, no, no. You know, this was in the 1970s. I don't want to tell you how old I am, but this was a long time ago, and I don't remember any cultural exchanges to Russia. That would have been fun. Uh, and so when did the idea of, of civil liberties, you said you didn't really have, have a word for it back then, when did that become something that, that you became passionately interested in? You know, I don't, I think actually the, the, the degree to which I'm involved now is part of this um, era, but I, I forgot to mention something from my childhood, really important that I'm just going to bring up, yeah. which is that when I was like um, eight years old, uh, my teacher came to school and she said, um, you know, she said, I have something very sad to tell the class, get ready. And we were like, what? And she said, you know, your classmate who's not here today's father has disappeared. And we assume he's been killed. And so we're, and we're like, what? And it turned out that there was a submarine, a nuclear sub called the USS Thresher that had disappeared and was unaccounted for. And it was assumed it was a casualty of the Cold War. And it was never explained. I mean, now, since then, it's been explained here and there. You know, it was a submarine that the Russians found or whatever. But it was a profound profoundly disturbing experience to learn that, that there really was a real world out there and that, you know, we could, you know, we could join the Girl Scouts or go to our ballet classes and do whatever we want and live in some kind of bubble. But, but there really was a very dangerous world out there. And I, I think that had, a, and then, you know, of course the Kennedy assassination and which happened, you know, within the same year. And I think these two things, um, I don't know if they alerted me to civil liberties so much as they alerted me to the fact that the world was a pretty scary place. So at what point uh, or how did you come to the idea or the realization <laughs> that you wanted to do your part to make the world a little more just, a little less scary? So before I was um, doing this, um, I, um, I worked at the Soros Foundation, which is now called the Open Society Foundation. And I worked not, we didn't have an American program at the time. I worked in um, um, overseeing programs of, throughout Eastern Europe and Russia. And that was a pretty exciting time to begin to try to think about what matters in terms of building civil societies around the world and how to support education and how to support people who had been dissidents. And I, even before I worked at Soros, I had been captivated by dissidents in Eastern Europe um, throughout the Soviet Union and had really made it my business to try to get to know who they were and what they were writing. Um, Was there and, one dissident that, that particularly um, impacted yeah, that's you? A, yeah, Havel. 
because of Aslam Havel, who became, um, you know, the head of uh, Czechoslovakia, um, then the Czech Republic. Uh, I mean, it later became the Czech Republic um, after 1989. And he and others, Andrei Semyovsky in, in Russia, um, and a few others were people who I just wanted to read, wanted to know. And <clears throat> somehow in, in the summer of 1989, I had, I don't know what I read. But for some reason, I'm part of my um, family is from Hungary, and I had read some story um, about something happened in Hungary, and it just touched a nerve inside of me. And I was working at Bard College at the time, and I thought, you know, I w- I would like to um, I would like to to bring some people here from Hungary to talk about something that seems destabilizing over there. Don't ask me why. I mean, not mm-hmm. done a lot of work. And um, I had I knew about people like Miklos Harishti, who I greatly admired, dissidents over there. Um, and I started to send out letters to invite people. Did they want to come to a conference that I thought I would have in the spring? And I wanted to bring some dissidents and I wanted to talk about freedom of expression. You're asking me about civil liberties. I think this may be the moment. Um, and I was young at the time, you know, and I, and I thought, you know, I want to invite these people. So I started sending out letters and then I thought, why have just Hungarians? What, this is much more interesting. So I started to write to a number of, um, Czechs and others. And of course, many of these individuals had never been to the United States. Um, and some of them had, but were really intrigued and interested by what I, what I was, proposing. And so they all said yes. And a, a number, I, I didn't really know much about fundraising, but I wrote to a number of um, foundations, including the MacArthur Foundation, that just sort of wrote me a check. Um, and so I ended up getting a lot of money for this. And it was a good thing because um, in November of that year, the wall came down. And all I was suddenly in a place where I thought I would have 200 people in this audience in, in, in Annandale on Hudson, which is where Bard was, all of a sudden there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who wanted to come to this event because all these people who had never been heard of, really heard of in the flesh, were coming to this conference that I just like was having because of a curious, I don't know what happened. And so this was a major turning point in my life. Um, and it, um, I got to know a lot of individuals who had been working in the, um, in the um, community that thought about um, really human rights writ large and, and building democracies. And that kind of launched that conference, which did happen, launched my career because then I had a lot of extra, had some extra money and I asked these foundations if I could keep it. <laughs> and I created an exchange program, which brought um, individuals from each one of the um, Soviet republics and uh, countries and the Soviet Union itself um, the former Soviet Union to Bard to participate in a year-long seminar called Rights and Liberties alongside an equal number of, of Bard undergraduates. Mm. And boy, was that interesting. You can't, I can't even um, convey what kinds of conversations these students who were just coming out of that kind of environment, had exchanges they had with um, American students and how not on the same page they all were and how they understood priorities and anger and um what you're entitled to from your government in such different ways um so that and then you know then that sort of that's where how i ended up here somehow so so is there like one specific conversation you remember as as being just like profoundly you know intriguing or enlightening or speaking to the moment um 
I, I can think of many, but I can tell you about, um, I want to talk about that course a little bit. And if you don't, if that's not, but what happened at the end of that course was we decided to have a little public symposium mm -hmm. and we divided the students into groups where there would be, you know, both Americans and Russians and East Europeans and in the group. And we were talking about how to deal with post-conflict situations or post, um, totalitarian situations. And, um, what was fascinating was that the Americans were saying to their counterparts from abroad, look, you really have to learn how to say the past is the past and let's move on to the future. And the European and the people who had been living under Soviet domination um, or and and for so long and whose grandparents had been jailed or killed or whatever it was said that. And they said, that's not going to happen. My grandparents were killed and, you know, my neighbor was killed and we're not going to just turn the page. And the Americans were like pleading with them, like turn the page. And they were using, this was just so amazing, you know, sort of re rereading reconstruction in that way as if it had all worked out so perfectly. Right. And, and it was so interesting to see it. And, and you could understand the legitimacy of both sides. And, and so, it just taught me how much work we had to do to really teach both populations how to understand one another and how to think about how to go forward in a way that wasn't dictated but could come from within. So that's just one conversation I remember. And and so then you ended up with a, the Soros Foundation. And and in case you know listeners are not as aware, Soros Foundation really started as a, a way to help the transition to democracy in Eastern yeah. Europe following the um, the end of the the Cold War, the fall of the wall. Uh, before it kind of grew into like the big open society institute today, its roots really are are in Eastern Europe. Oh, absolutely. And it was what an amazing project that was and how many um, talented, vibrant, hopeful people were um, associated with it throughout um, Eastern Europe and and just the the plans that they put together for rethinking curriculum and expanding the curriculum and for, uh, you know, re revitalizing the arts, which had been so important in these countries and um, thinking about um, human rights in practice so that things like, you know, the, um, the populations that had been ostracized could be reintegrated. Um, it was, it was an amazing so, it was an amazing set of um, cultures. You mentioned you mentioned earlier that that Václav Havel was 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 your guy. Did you did you ever meet him in person? I did not meet him, but here's here's something really interesting that you'll like. Um, um, and I should have met him, but I didn't. Um, largely because I think by then I had moved, I was working in um, Russia. But Václav Havel had somebody who was working um, very. Um, um, closely with him, named Yuji Peihei. And I had gotten to know him when I was working at the Soros Foundation, and he was really sort of a hobble's right-hand man. And after I left the Soros Foundation, I went to NYU. And one of the things I did at NYU was to set up their foreign campuses. And one of Actually, the first foreign campus I set up for them was in Prague, which is a which is a city I love and have loved from the first moment I got there. And um, I set up NYU in Prague. It was a, a wonderful experience, um, and it's a it was a vibrant program and just just an you know amazing fruition of things I really cared about. And for eighteen months, I ran it out of New York, you know, I went back and forth constantly because I wanted Yuji Peihei to run it. And I just thought he didn't know it, but I created it for him. I had him in mind the whole time. I knew that he was 
he identified with Havel and, and Havel's goals. And he, and um, I succeeded one day. I went to him and I said, I'm going to take you to this place. I'm going to show it to you. And it was just beautifully uh, done. And, and he said, yes, and he has run it since then. So, uh, so uh, once again, really you nice. create academic opportunities for Eastern European dissidents. <laughs> yes, thank you. I guess that was my goal in life. I, I did that already. So you, so you mentioned that you lived in, in the Soviet Union, or, or was it already Russia at that time? No, I didn't live there. I went back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I had children, and I ran the New York the things out of the New York office. Okay. So I would just sometimes I went really frequently. Sometimes I went and stayed a long time. I had wonderful people who were sort of running the day to day over there, um, and I interfaced with New York and them, and it was just it was great. So when did the the, the transition happen uh, between sort of what I know you have, what I think sort of your your public profile is, which is a sort of a civil liberties human rights uh, person uh, from from this line of work. Well, they're all sort of the same, right? I mean, when people say that to me, I'm like, I to me, I see this like a seamless transition. But let's say that um, I what happened was I set up Prague. Um, then I I I thought of myself as a person who was sort of just working in the interstices of of international academic entrepreneurship or whatever. So then I set up one in in London, which was easy and fun. And then I set up um, one in uh, Argentina and in Buenos Aires. And that actually was quite a challenge. Buenos Aires was quite different than Eastern Europe and certainly than London. And I learned again about the ghosts of the past and how deeply they can affect the ability or even desire of a culture to 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 move on and to want to move on. And so that was a rather um, eye-opening experience. I didn't know a lot about Argentina before I went there. Um, and then, let's see, when was that? Well, that so, was- so uh, I, I would talk about that a, a little bit because, so this was, I presume, what, in, in the 1990s that you were, you were working? Yeah, this was probably, yeah, in the late 1990s. So, yeah. so not, so, so still some years after the, the junta oh, yeah. uh, fell. Way after, but the scars were there. I mean, you go to the museum and the portraits would be, of, you know, paintings of empty beds for the children who had been disappeared or handprints of all the children on on a wall showing, you know, again, the children that had disappeared and the stories of people whose family members had disappeared. I mean, this was just something, it's one thing to read about in the paper and one thing to be of the, the generation just a little bit ahead of me that was involved in all of this in a, in a sort of active way. But to see the legacy of it and the traces of it um, was was really another dimension for me to understand just what can happen and how, how deeply personal it could be, even though, you know, so many of us are tied up in the policy world. Um, so, so then uh, all this while you're, you're, you're living in New York. Um, I have to uh, imagine. Well, so what's, what's the, the sort of trajectory then that leads up to um, your, your kind of current line of work, which, you know, you said is there's a lot of continuation be- between sort of thematically between the work that you're doing before. Yeah. Um, was it really like an inflection point of, of September 11th? Yes. September 11th was, you know, some people say to me, like, I don't get what 9-11 mean, means so much to you. And I, like, I don't, I can't even understand what they're saying. You know, 9-11 was a, obviously for me and so many other people, um, it just, you know, my life has been different. Well, how did you experience that, that moment? day? So that day um, I experienced with um, my daughter 
who was um, at school in Brooklyn, and I lived on the Upper West Side of New York. So for those of you far away from New York, that is, a, nobody in their right mind would send their children to school that far away. Um, and so um, when 9-11 happened, which was downtown and basically in sight of her Brooklyn school, um, the decision was made that nobody could come back across the river, mm-hmm. which meant that my daughter wasn't coming home that day. Um, and so um, that all, all of a sudden, meanwhile, all these other people showed up at my house who needed a place to stay because for whatever reasons, they um, were stuck in New York. So, um, and I can remember saying to my ex-husband on the phone, I don't care how you get her, just go get her. I, I was like not having that she wasn't coming home. And the next day, um, so she stayed at a friend's house, not a problem. Um, the next day, um, she arrives at home. And I said to her, honey, how did you get here? And she said, I went up to the man with the gun and I told him I had to get home to my mommy. And I was like, what? And so, you know, there were all these guys with, you know, machine guns at the subways. And she went up to him and they told they told her that the subways were down, but there actually was a way she could figure out. And she figured it out and came home. And I thought, okay, I learned something. And what I learned was the next time my children asked me if they can stay out all night partying and I was worried about their safety, I was going to say yes, because we couldn't really protect them from we couldn't really protect them in a way that we thought we could protect them. And I wanted to think about that. And so so that's mm -hmm. what changed it. So, so following uh, the September 11th attacks, the the Bush administration readied the the Patriot Act, right? The the package of surveillance and countermeasures uh, to you know presumably prevent this from happening uh, again. Um, there was not much opposition, political opposition, in Congress at the time to the Patriot Act. But I wonder if in your circles, uh, how you came to understand the Patriot Act and and whether you tried to mount whatever opposition you could muster. So I did not come into the conversation in a formal way until late 2002, early 2003, when I decided to found this center at NYU. And so from the period September 2001 until late 2002, I wasn't really paying attention, um, I don't want to disappoint you here, to the nitty gritty of it. Mm -hmm. I was aware that it was something to think about, but I hadn't quite figured out what my entry point or if I was going to have an entry point. I I didn't really know. And so while I'm sure I read the paper and was thinking about it, it was nothing like what I later came to understand. And, and so I, you know, so I, so that's just a, disclaimer i need to say although i'd like to say i was on it the moment it happened i wasn't well well, how did you come to found the center then um because i'd done so much work with nyu and taught there uh i didn't know the law school really but somebody from the law school called me up and said would you like to help us get some money to design a course and i was sort of semi-retired at the time writing fiction um um just taking a little bit of a break from a lot of intense international experiences. And um, uh, I I looked at what they were thinking about and I said, no, but I do think you guys are missing an opportunity. I think you should start um, some kind of institute devoted to um, (laughs) the war on terror and 
and the civil liberties issues associated with it, we really need to have some kind of center for this. And I think I could, um, I don't know, I think there's money out there for it. And so I wrote a proposal um, and it got funded. This was before DHS, it got funded. I believe the first grant was from DOJ, almost like within weeks. Wow. Um, and you then you seem to be you, very good at this. I, I must I say the, 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 the fundraising and, part. Well, there was a long time in between, but yeah, I don't know. And then, and then, and, and then NYU said, did you want to run it? And I was like, no, you don't understand. I'm retired, I'm semi-retired. But then I thought, you know, I know I had a vision in my mind of what I wanted to do. I wanted, and I learned something and I had gotten a feel for it. I think when I was writing the proposal, which was the more, you know, the better you feel in the sense that right after 9-11 and for those first 18 months or, or two years or maybe even longer, there was a sense that, you know, well, well, all these bad things could happen and there's going to be a follow-up attack and the FBI is not talking to the CIA and we haven't fixed it and we're going to war. And I, the more I knew, the more calm I became. And I can't tell you exactly why, but just kind of knowing, even if I knew things were wrong, like you were learning about how these systems set up in New York to, you know, stop the next terrorist attack, and then there'd be some kind of expose about how they would never work. It didn't matter. Just knowing um, was calming. And I thought it's going to calm other people down to know this too, that yes, they're going to know some things that are unpleasant. They're going to know what these threats are, but they're also going to learn what threats are not really threats. And, and, and the idea of, of taking us, understanding what was happening, um, so much of it hidden from us became more and more motivating because, you know, I took this, I created the center not knowing we were going to end up spending years um, thinking and writing about uh, torture. It, like, it, you know, we didn't know that. We did know, I did know, you know, that Guantanamo had been set up and, and that that would be something to focus on. But the degree to which this would become the intersection of national security and civil liberties hadn't, hadn't, I hadn't quite realized it when I wrote this proposal. And yet we did exactly what was in that proposal. So, uh, so it's interesting. Was, was there a, a moment um, during those years where you realized that some of the sort of revocations of, of civil liberties might be permanent, that they might not be just sort of emergency measures, but but sort of our sort of approach to civil liberties may forever be changed in the United States. I, it, I was worried about it from the very beginning, but until right now, I haven't, uh, this is where, this is the moment that I'm the most worried because, and I'm really glad you brought that up because for over a decade, People like me have been saying, don't do this because the consequences of having this open as a possibility are not acceptable. Right now, the, the, we can talk about, you know, surveillance powers, but we can also talk about the targeted killing program. You know, that the idea that, exec, that the White House decides who's, who's uh, rises to the level of needing to be killed with a weaponized drone um, is frightening when you think about trust me government and what that means. And and the same thing is having a category of enemy that is ever expandable that we can put in Guantanamo or label enemy and kill by a drone strike. I mean, all of, of these, or surveillance, the way in which we've expanded surveillance powers and said, don't worry, we're gonna have good people who will protect our civil liberties. 
this is the moment in which I'm the most concerned. Um, and it doesn't mean I wasn't concerned in the past, but there was always like, well, the, the pendulum is swinging slowly back, but it's still swinging somewhat back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so we're at a really precarious moment. right Well, now. you know, you mentioned earlier, like the judiciousness of the uh, President Obama's disposition and that how that might have allayed some some liberals and, and other critics um, from some of the structural flaws that you just identified that, you know, that the executive can just, you know, put someone on, on a kill list and then send a drone. Yeah. And then you have someone who's not known for their their sort of like a, 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 a sort of thoughtful disposition, someone like Donald Trump, who, who seems to be a little more impulsive. And that's now profoundly worrying. And, and you know, you are like, you know, one of the lone voices out there, one of the few voices out there, not few, but 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 not it was not like a majority voice among say liberals or democrats uh to to criticize the obama administration at the time and and so now it's yeah i I can see what you're saying about how being very kind of scary and and frightening that this where that pandora's box had been opened well yeah because it never got it was opened a long time ago and it never got closed and I mean, for example, not holding anybody accountable for for torture turns out to be a very big deal because now, yes, it's illegal. It always was illegal. Um, but now the idea that so what happens if you break those laws or if you change those laws? Nothing. Um, that's that's somewhat pro- that's, you know, not just somewhat problematic. It's deeply problematic. And so it's it's like we failed. Are there any examples in the history that you can think of um, of civil liberties having been revoked during a time of emergency or national crisis being reinstated? Well, sure. I mean, Lincoln, um, you know, denied habeas uh, rights in the in the Civil War. It gets restored. 1919 was perhaps the worst year for civil liberties up till the present era um, in which, you know, um, people were were locked up for what they said, for what they wrote. Um, for being accused of being socialist, Eugene Debs, um, uh, Emma Goldman, you know, being deported. I mean, there are so many instances of, and and then the law comes back, and that sort of the, the the lack of panic comes back, and the calmness comes back, and we were just we've been slowly, but I thought surely getting there, even in terms of transparency, in terms of revealing some of the documents that the government hasn't been willing to reveal on torture, on on surveillance, on targeted killings. But now um, it it didn't come back fast enough. We, we, we accepted a few years ago, at least I did, that it was never coming all the way back. Um, but uh, yeah, so of, of course there are, are instances, in, uh, but this is looking you know, here's what we have now. Um, we're beginning to understand just how angry the country was when Obama was elected. There was tremendous anger about sort of the liberal agenda taking over. And um, and now you have a kind of vicious um, uh, other side of that. Um, and so we'll see where this goes, but it is it, the kind of hate speech and the mm-hmm. kind of violence that's being uh, incited is 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 disconcerting. Are, are there any specific indicators that you're looking out towards that uh, might suggest how the Trump administration will approach some of these big questions on on civil liberties? Yeah, um, 
the surveillance, uh, the Patriot Act sunsetted in um, to, in the summer, uh, early summer of 2015, which meant that the bulk metadata uh, collection program that had been revealed by Edward Snowden, one of the things he revealed, um, was pulled back on once once we knew, right? What once Congress knew what was going on, once the court had said it was uh, the had said it was. Um, uh, illegal, although it didn't get to the issue of constitutionality. Now there are a number of um, proposals for new surveillance powers. Um, I think this is this is one area in which it's hard to know who's going to have the power to fight back on this in Congress. And um, and so the issue of of maintaining some freedom from surveillance by the government and they're being able to collect all this information on us for whatever uses um, is 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 one area to really look at big area for me and I'm sure you know this and I mentioned it before putting any new person in Guantanamo Bay is um, tremendously uh, disconcerting um, there was mention during the campaign of using it for Americans this is you know expanding the category of enemy something we've always been worried about um, where that's going to go, um, you know, there, and I, I could go further, but I, I don't want to because I hate putting it even out there. Uh, well, Karen, thank you so much for your time. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, thank we can so. keep going. I'll, I, I, if, <laughs> no. if you have another minute, I'll, I'll, you know what, here, why don't I ask this? Why, so what, what else are you working on? Is, is there anything else I, we can look forward to come from you, come from the center in the near future? I'm working on thinking about how to rethink the conversation about um, reducing, for better or for worse, reducing radicalization in this country. And for me, I really want to think about how to better treat our children. And I know that maybe sound like not as highfalutin as what do we do with our courts or what do we do with our Congress. But the, the issue of violence by disaffected youth in the United States today, ISIS as part of it, but only as part of it, a much larger issue. We need to take care of our children better. And I'm trying to figure out how to link that to the national security conversation. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, that uh, Europe has been grappling with for, for a very long time, the disaffected, you know, second generation youth challenge. Yes, but we're supposed to have be a country that values integration and doesn't marginalize um, second generation in, and, and, and take away um, hope from anybody. And that's why I say it's more than just immigrants. This is about American kids. And um, look, a lot of the ISIS individuals are, are in the United States are converts. Um, and a lot of the incidents of mass violence are individuals have nothing to do with um, ISIS. This is, we're, we're facing a real inability to take care of one another. And we need to address that quickly. Well, Karen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Karen. And yeah, the podcast is going really well. Thank you all for your emails, for your tweets, for leaving reviews on iTunes, and a particularly deep thank you from the bottom of my heart to those of you who are joining the Premium Podcast Members Club. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. It means so, so much to me, and it enables me to help bring this kind of content to you so consistently on a regular basis. So I, I so appreciate your support. Thank you all, and we will be back soon. Bye.